last week we talked about a proven confession. Amen. A proven confession. And so this confession that uh, we all hold to and it's teaching us about learning to confess our sins one to another so that we can have fellowship with God and walk in the light. And so this week, I've got a message prepared for you. Uh, buckle up. It's called Proven Obedience. Proven Obedience. And I'll be in First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me there or scroll with me there. I know y'all got Bibles on y'all phone, so scroll with me to there, to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Hear these words of our Father. It says, this is how we know that we know him. How do you know that 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 you know him? John gives us the answer to that. He says, if, somebody say if, we keep his commands. Verse 4 says, the one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commands, is a liar, my God. And the truth is not in him. But whoever, somebody say whoever, whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. And this is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains or abides in him should walk just as Jesus walked. Father, help us to walk as you walked. Order our steps according to your word. God, give us clear pathways to follow you. Give us clear pathways to walk rightly before you. And so, God, I pray for this word this morning, God, that, Lord, that it will go out and accomplish what it's set to do. God, we know that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, severing the marrow from the bone. And, God, I pray that this word would get deep down into the marrow of our souls. God, it's in that same spirit, Lord, that I pray that you would stand in my body and think through my mind and speak through my mouth. And let the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer, in whom I place all of my trust. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. So often we admire the obedience of dogs at a dog show. Anybody ever watch those dog shows with the little dogs that had the bows on their head and they'd be walking around and they hopping over stuff? I had some dogs, and they didn't do that. <laughs> so I got rid of them because <laughs> they wasn't obedient. But Archibald Rutledge, he wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed tragically in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained to Mr. Rutledge how it happened. 
The man said because he worked outdoors, he would often take his dog with him into the woods. And this one morning, he left his dog and told him, uh, as they walked inside of a clearing, he told him, he said, stay here and watch my lunch bucket for me while I go further into the woods. And unfortunately, as the man went further into the woods, there came a forest fire. And as the fire came, uh, this faithful dog who listened to the words of his master, he didn't budge even though the fires were coming towards him. He stayed right there in perfect obedience to his master's commands. And with tears in his eyes, the owner replied and told Mr. Rutledge, he told him, he said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. And I want to ask this question of us today. How many of us are willing to give up our lives in obedience to Jesus's commands? I'll restate it as a statement and say this, that not many of us are willing to give up our lives in obedience to Jesus's commands. But I want to submit this idea to you today, and that idea is this, is that our obedience shows proof of our love for Jesus. I'll say it again, is that our obedience is proof of our love for Jesus Christ. And so we're called as followers of Jesus. We're called as servants of Jesus because we are servants of a great master. And so we're called to obeying his commands at whatever cost it might cost to us. We're called to following after him regardless of the price that we have to pay. Why? Because he paid the ultimate price for us by dying on the cross for our sins in our place when we had no ability to pay for our own sins. And so I want you to see this today. I want you to know this, that if you're going to walk in proven obedience, then you have to have a knowing proof. John says this in verse number three. He says this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. How do you know that you know that you know that you know God? Like, how is it that you know? Well, John submits this to us. He tells us very clearly. He said, you know if you keep his commandments. See, knowing God is more than a notion. I wish I had some help in here this morning. See, see knowing God is more than emotion. A notion. See, most people, they, they have a very strong position that they know God. People say to me all the time, Pastor, yeah, I'm good with God. Me and God, we straight. Like, I know him. He know me. <laughs> and, and they talk like that. But oftentimes, that position that they hold leads them to an assertion that their actions are somehow shielded from examination and judgment from the word of God simply because they know him. And I would argue that that is a false assertion that they have. (laughs) I would argue that that is a false notion that they hold to. But the reality is, is this, is that when they say it, they often use it as a definitive statement. They often state this this difference that, that I know God, so I'm good. You need to know him better so you don't have to do all of that stuff. 
if you if you knew him better, you wouldn't have to worry about going to church every single week if you knew him like I knew him. If you knew him how I knew him, then you'd be okay if you were sleeping around with your girlfriend because God knows your heart. Well, guess what? God knows your heart. <laughs> he said it is deceptive and it is wicked above all else. And so people, they use this assertion, the culture uses this assertion as if they somehow know God and that puts them in a better position than other people. And if people who, who don't know God as well as they do, they're just tripping. But I want you to understand this, that there is a distinct difference between knowing about God and actually knowing him. There is a distinct difference between knowing some facts about God than actually knowing about the character of God. And so when John speaks about knowing God, he uses a word here that means to learn to know. The, the, the word that he uses, there is a word that expresses this idea is that you are never finished knowing God, but you're always in the place where you are coming to know him. See, the assertion that I know God and I'm good is a false assertion because it assumes, a, based on a presumption, that you have reached a place where you have discovered all the things about God and you don't need to learn anything else about him. But J.R. Packer here, who, who wrote the book Knowing God, here's what he says. He says, a, a God who we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God made in man's image and therefore an imaginary God and not the God of the Bible at all. So th this, this word here, it carries the sense of, of us growing in our knowledge of him. It carries the sense of us walking in relationship with him to the point where we learn to know him and we gather more information about him as we go throughout this life. See, we, we have to understand what that is. See, this word, it also carries the sense that, that knowing God is, is about something that you feel on the inside of you. See, knowing God is more than some head knowledge that you have up here, but knowing God is something that happens inside of your heart. See, if knowing God, watch this, if knowing God isn't something that you constantly wrestle with, then you're doing it wrong. See, if you're never in the place where you're examining yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not, you're doing it wrong. If you're never in a position where you have to wonder and you have to always, you have to ask questions about your faith, God, am I really trusting you in this instance where, where I'm doubting you, God? Am I really, really learning about you here? When you just know God, right, and you just say, I'm good with him, you're doing it wrong. And so, listen, we got to see this, that we got to wrestle with God in order to know him. See, if you're not wrestling with God, you're missing the point. And see, knowing God has everything to do with learning about him. One of the ways that we learn, I spent many years as, as, as a mental health therapist. And so one of the things that I would do with some of my clients, especially the younger ones, I would use this practice called reinforcement. Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody heard of Pavlov's dogs and all that kind of stuff? Operate conditioning and all that kind of stuff? Anybody heard of it? Okay. One or two of you. It's all right. I'm explaining it to you. This idea... <laughs> Thank you. This idea 
of reinforcement. Here's what it looks like. Reinforcement takes on two shapes. There is positive reinforcement. Then there's negative reinforcement. Now, the word negative is is a little deceptive, but here's what I want you to see. When, When he talks about reinforcement, this process of reinforcement is a process that helps us to learn certain behaviors. It helps us to learn how to behave in certain situations. So, for example, here's an example of positive reinforcement. It's a strange phenomenon because it never happened to me. But receiving money for getting an A on your report card. I don't know what that's like. I got an A and my aunt was like, you want to eat? <laughs> you better get some A's. And so I didn't know what that was like. But but for some people, th- this is a process of positively reinforcing the behavior of receiving good grades by giving them a positive stimuli so that they will in turn repeat the behavior. And so that, that happens. It's, it's strange, but th- that happens. That's, that's an example of it. Some of us... We, we, we get a, another type of reinforcement. It's called negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement, you probably all experienced it this morning. You get in your car, and you put it in drive, and you haven't put your seatbelt on yet. What happens? Now, some of y'all might know what I'm talking about because y'all cars are old. But <laughs> the thing starts beeping. Ding, 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 ding. It'll drive you crazy. You got a Toyota, it'll drive you nuts. But that's an example of negative reinforcement. What happens is, is that you receive a negative stimuli, a negative stimulus, which will indicate to you to produce a, a, a repeated behavior that you should be in the practice of for your safety. I.e., you put your seatbelt on when the thing starts dinging. That's an example of negative reinforcement. Here's what happens. You ready? Often we're good with God's positive reinforcements, but we reject his negative reinforcement. See, we're good when God says, listen, here, here, I'll give you this so that you can respond in worship. We're good with that. God bless me indeed, God. Enlarge my territory, Jesus. Give me everything that I want, Jesus. And, and, and do what I want you to do, God. I know I asked you last Tuesday for this job, and it's only Wednesday, but God, I need the answer right now. And if you answer me, God, I'll praise your name. Like, that's an example of positive reinforcement. What we don't like is when God uses negative stimuli to produce a repeated behavior in our lives. Often, we're good. But God uses both forms to help us to learn to know him. A loss of a job is designed to reinforce your knowledge that God is your source and not your job. See, see, a, 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 a fracture in a relationship is designed to reinforce your knowledge or your learning of him that you are a friend of God. And so when other people forsake you and other people mistreat you and turn their backs on you, you're good because you be reinforced that you are a friend of God. A car accident is designed to reinforce your knowledge or your learning that God is your protector. You might be the best driver that there is. 
You've got State Farm and all that good stuff. You've got all the best coverages. Your, your liability is set at the max and all this stuff that you've got going on, right? But the reality is no matter how safely you drive, there's always somebody who's not paying attention on the road and who will run on the side of you and knock you right on off the road. But here's what this negative reinforcement does. See, all, I, I got a friend. She was in an accident. Her car was totaled. And she got out of the car without a scratch. And see, when that type of stuff happens, guess what? That's a reinforcement from God that he is, in fact, your protector, not your seatbelt, not the, the airbags in your car. None of that stuff is protecting you. God is the one who is protecting you. So we have to be ready to embrace some of the negative reinforcement that we need in order to respond properly and have a proper knowledge of God. J.I. Packer, again, in his book, Knowing God, if you haven't read it, you need to get a copy of it today. He says, once you become aware that the main business that you, that you, are, that you are here for is, is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. And what, what Dr. Packer is saying is this. He's saying, listen, when you are properly aligned, when you have a proper knowledge of God, when you have a proper knowledge of who he is, guess what? All of your problems seem less. See, when you have a proper knowledge that God is your provider, guess what? When you are short on money this week, you don't have to freak out because you know that God is your provider. When, when you run low on relationship status, guess what? You are good because you know that God is the lover of your soul. When you run low on other stuff, guess what? You're good because you know that God is the one who is your source for everything. John argues here that the, that the way to know God or the real way to prove it, somebody say prove it. The real way to prove it is to keep his commands. Watch this. He says, if, if, that's a statement right there. He says, if we keep his commands. This word here is, is a word that, that means to attend to. The word keep is a word that means to attend to something or to, to attend to it carefully or to, to take care or to, to, to preserve something, to guard it in your mind. And so what he's saying is here, he says, if we are going to prove it, then we are going to have to carefully attend to God's commands. See, th- this, this word for attending to, it, it means to apply your mind and your energies to something. So what John is saying here is that in order for you to attend to God's commands, guess what you got to do? You got to have his words and his commands on your heart. See, David lets us know that in Psalm 19, verse 11. He says, your word have I hid in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. If you want to walk away from sin, if you want, if you want to walk in, in, in a place where, where you're fighting with sin and you're, and you're properly dealing with the sin in your life, then you need to have the word of God written on your heart. You need to have the word of God hidden in your heart. How do you have the word of God hidden in your heart? Guess what you have to do? You've got to read your Bible. <laughs> You've got to read your Bible. You can't sit your Bible on top of your chest at night while you lay down and go to sleep and act like, (laughs) I'm getting the word, Jesus. (laughs) Listen, you're just hugging the Bible. (laughs) 
No, you got to read the words that's in them pages. Like, you got to read between that leather. You got to read, or that imitation leather, whatever Bible you got, paper, whatever it is. You got to read these words. If you don't read these words, then you can't hide it in your heart. That's plain, hide and go seek without a person. <laughs> you just hiding. <laughs> Ain't nobody around. Like, you just, sad life. But here's what he says, too. This word for attention, it comes from an old, old French word, which, which, which means to, to stretch. Hear me. I'll explain it to you because you're quiet. It's a word that means to stretch. And so in order to attend to God's commands, you have to stretch beyond your capacity sometime. See, sometimes it's going to cause you to be stretched in order to obey what God has to say. See, sometimes, guess what? They're going to say something to you so flipping out their mouths and you're going to be ready to strike back. But God says, no, hold up. (laughs) You're going to have to stretch beyond your capacity here. I know that you want to snap back at them, but I need you to show kindness and gentleness towards them. And so here's what happens. This word here, the Greek word, it has a sense of undergoing something in order to obey. So if, we, if keeping his commands doesn't cause you some pain, then you're doing it wrong. I'll help you. Believers ought to have scars on their tongue from biting their tongue so much. But believers ought to have scars on their tongue from, from holding back those words that immediately come from their, from their brain to their mouth. Believers sometimes have aches in their hearts when they have to hit the ignore button on that old flame who keeps trying to creep back into their lives, texting them, talking about how much they miss them. And they're saying all the right things to ease the dulling pain of loneliness that you have in your heart at that moment is going to cause you some aches sometimes to obey the word of God. If you don't feel some pain obeying Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Here's what I know. People don't have a hard time with keeping the commands of Jesus because they're outdated. That's what the culture would like to argue. The Bible is just outdated. You, you trust it in that book, that 2,000-year-old book. It's outdated. The stuff in there is not relevant. Well, I don't think that's their real problem. <laughs> their real problem is that people have a hard time with keeping God's commands because they know that it's not easy to fight with your flesh at all times. So instead of fighting, here's what they do. They just found it easier to give in to their flesh. Here's what I know. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the weak. It's not for the feeble or the frail. Following Jesus requires a strength of character that most people just don't have. And so when people try to try to convict you of being weak as a weak Christian, a weak minded Christian, guess what? You let them know I've got strength in order to fight against my flesh where you're just giving into your flesh at all times. I won't allow my flesh to be my master because I've already got a master in heaven who gave up everything for me. So I'll fight to please him and not fight to please my flesh. But here's what they don't know. We got a little secret. 
we don't fight sin in our own in our own strength. <laughs> we fight with the mighty weapons of warfare that we've been given by Christ. Second Corinthians tells us, it says, for, for although we live in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish every argument and every proud thing that is raised up against what? The knowledge of God. If you are going to know God, then you have to know how to fight when it comes to using your spiritual warfare. You got to know how to fight. And the weapons of your warfare are carnal. See, listen, the reason why some of us are trapped in patterns of sin is because we haven't properly addressed the root of why we sin. See, some of us just walk around angry all the time, snapping at people, and we we say, I'm just angry all the time. Like, my, my blood pressure just shoots up whenever somebody says something out of pocket to me. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is, is that you haven't properly dealt with the disappointment that's in your heart about you asking God for something or, or something in your life not going the way that you thought it should go. And now you're disappointed. And now when you look at other people, you see their lives and you get frustrated that they seem to have a life that you want that you can't have yet but so you get angry at them and you start snapping about every little thing you got to deal with the root and some of us have strongholds in our lives but it says the weapons of our warfare they're powerful through god to demolish strongholds we demolish every argument and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of god and then this is what he says He says, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Some of you need to print that out and put it on your bathroom mirror, then put it in the mirror in your bedroom, and then when you get in your car, put it on the visor, and then put that on your hand somewhere. Like, you need to put that everywhere. Because here's what happens. Some of us, I'm saying some of us, like, I'm not included in that. (laughs) We think something, and boom. It just traveled right out your mouth. We think, thought just pop up, and we say it. But what Paul is saying is when that thought come, boom, catch that thing. Hold it captive right there. Don't let those words just run out. You, you know those words are going to be destructive. You know those words are going to murder that person. And, and the tongue is the, is, the, is the biggest mass murder in the history of the world. We've murdered more people with our tongue than with anything else. So he says, take captive every thought. Why? In order to obey Jesus Christ. If you're going to obey Jesus, then you've got to start catching those thoughts as they come. You've got to take them captive. And Paul's letting us know that not one of our thoughts should escape us. Or it will cause us to be disobedient to Jesus. And here's what we do. We think, well, it's not that bad, you know. I only use small curse words to cuss them out. <laughs> I ain't even say no big cuss words. You know the big ones. <laughs> I ain't say none of them. I just said little ones, Pastor. Well, it's the little foxes that destroy the vine. Or only a little bit of leaven will destroy the whole lump. So you got to be mindful of those small things 
that you don't think are anything. But here's what they're doing. They're reconstructing your character. Those little things that you just allow to just go by and you say, oh, it's not a big deal. Well, it's not that bad. It's, take, it's, like, it's like doing demolition on your character. It's knock, knocking out the old bricks of the chimney there and it's pulling them out and it's putting in new, ch- new bricks and making it look like something that it wasn't before. And so then you're wondering, I just don't know why I'm so angry. I don't know what happened. Well, that's because you allowed the little things to just keep going and you didn't properly address them when they came up because you said they're just little. But you know what? This takes a different level of intentionality that most of our lives aren't built for. See, and I'm not speaking about legalism here, but I am speaking about leaning into the commands of God. See, you've got to lean into what he says. You've got to lean into his commands. You've got to lean into his character. And as you lean in, you have to have a level of intentionality where you take examination of your life and you consider the things that you struggle with and you consider the areas of sin in your life and you, and you confess them before your brothers and sisters. But not only that, you address them as they come up. Well, you know, it's just a little bit of pride, Pastor. Well, guess what? That pride is destructive. You got to address it. My wife and I, we love all types of cop shows. Cop shows, NCIS, we watch. We watch NCIS, NCIS LA, NCIS New Orleans. We watch all the NCISs. Like, we watch all those shows. We watch Hawaii Five O, all that stuff like that. If it's a cop show, if it's a, it has to do with Army or, or Navy or, or, or Marines or, or anything like that, we watch it. And what happens while we watch those shows never fails. Probably once an episode. Someone says, that's an order. And they say, that's an order. You, you Don't do that. And the person ends up doing it anyway. But what we have to understand is this. When it talks about the commands of God here, man, this, this word is very interesting here. This word means commands. Like, pretty, pretty clear. It's like fascinating. That when he says commands, it means commands. What we think is this. We think the commands of God are suggestions. Like, <laughs> as if God who spoke to, the, spoke to the vastness and told it to let there be light, and it obeyed him. <laughs> as if the God who said to put the stars into the firmament, and he spoke to that and commanded that, and it obeyed him. As if he would waste his time giving you a suggestion. Like, well, why, why would he waste his time giving suggestions? That, that's not who he is. He commands and we should obey. But the, the word here has the sense of an authoritative prescription. Here's what this means. See, when God, see, you go to the doctor. You've been sick. You've been coughing. <laughs> you got all this stuff going on in your chest. Blame everything. So you go to the doctor and they give you an antibiotic. Y'all, y'all been there. You've got antibiotics before. And they say, here, take this Z-Pack and take it until it's finished. And we go, okay. And we leave the doctor's office and we go home and we take three of them joints. And we're like, I feel better now. I'm good. <laughs> and you don't take the whole thing. It was suggested to you to take the whole prescription in order for you to receive the maximum benefit of the prescription. 
And so the commands of God, they're an authoritative prescription. They're not a suggestive prescription. And so what God is saying to us is that, listen, the commands of God are good medicine for your soul. If you obey me, if you obey my commands, then guess what? You'll be in a healthy place in life. If you obey what I have to tell you, if you obey my commands to you, then you'll be in a place of health and you can walk in health and you don't have to worry about spreading the disease of your disease of sin to other people. So he says, listen, if you don't obey his commands, then guess what? You're a liar and the truth is not in you. That word there for truth, it has a sense of, of, of reality. So what he says, if you, if you claim to know God and don't walk according to, to, to his commands, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So claiming to know God and not keeping his commands is an indicator that you're out of touch with reality. Not the other way around like the world would suggest. The world would state that obeying the commands of God means you're out of touch with the culture because you know the culture has so much to say about everything and so the culture says this one thing about a particular topic and we're just supposed to go okay but what 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 the bible says here is the bible is saying is that if you are going to know god then guess what you're going to have to stand flat-footed on the commands of god regardless of what the culture might say and sometimes that might cause some persecution to come your way but guess what it's good for your soul a little bit of persecution is going to be good for you. You know why? Because in the book of Acts, guess what? They faced a whole bunch of persecution. And it did not stop, not one iota, not one instance of the gospel spreading throughout the known world. And so we think that if we say something we're not supposed to say because the culture doesn't like it, guess what? That the gospel is going to somehow stop, going to stop going forward. No, I'm going to argue for you is that when you stand on the word of God, then the gospel will go forward in ways that you can't imagine. So first you got to have a knowing proof. And then next you got to have a loving proof. He says here in verse five, he says, but whoever keeps his word. Truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This word here for love is, is the word agape. We all know what agape is. We saw agape on the Super Bowl. They had a commercial about agape and all that kind of stuff. But it's a unique word which would refer to Christian love but the, or, or the love that comes from God. But in one, in one sense, the word has the idea of a, of a love feast. Like, Pastor Derry, what's a love feast? Sound weird. <laughs> but a love feast was a feast expressing and fostering mutual love in which it was held before Christians uh, took part in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so at that time, what would happen is, is that poorer Christians would mingle with wealthier Christians and partake in a common meal at the expense of the wealthy Christians. So a love feast was when those who were well off and those who were in a better position, they would buy all the food and those who were poor could come in and they could just eat and they would partake in this feast before they took of the Lord's Supper. And so here's what happens. When you walk in obedience to God's word, guess what you do? You invite people into the love fest of God. 
when you walk in obedience to God's commands, you point people to the love fest of God's grace, to the love feast of God's mercy, to the love feast of God's kindness, to the love feast of God's patience, to the love feast of everything that God has for them. You tell them, say, hey, listen, I'm over here. Guess what? I'm not pointing at you and saying, look at you, sinner. I'm saying, hey, sinner, come over here. God has a feast for you. Come on this side. God has a feast of blessing for you. God has a piece of grace for you. He's got a a feast of mercy for you over on this side. And so when we follow the commands of God, we invite people into the love feast. And he says here that your love is made complete. In other words, he's telling me, saying that it's made perfect. John tells us later on in this book, he says that there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment, so the one who fears is not complete in their love. Why am I telling you that? People think that we obey God because of fear. Those old Christians, they just scared. They walk around in fear, scared to do anything. They think that they're going to go to hell. <laughs> if they sin, yeah, you will. <laughs> you go to hell. If you don't have Jesus, that's where you go. You go to hell. And so... But the reality is, is that we don't we don't respond in obedience to Jesus because of fear. We respond in obedience to Jesus because of our reverence for him. And so because of what he has done for us, we respond by obeying him. Parents, you have an expectation of your children listening to what you tell them to do. Because you feed them. <laughs> you put clothes on their back. So you have this great expectation that they listen to what you say. But God's the same. He has the expectation of us. And so the next, here's my last idea. So you've got to have a knowing proof. Somebody say knowing proof. Then you have to have a loving proof. And now, the last thing you need to do if you're going to have a proven obedience is you have to have an abiding proof. Thank you. Verse 6. It says, the one who says he remains or abides. In him should walk just as Jesus walked. The word therefore remain, it means to abide or to dwell or to continue with or to endure in him. And so uh, John Stott, one of my favorite theologians, he says this. He says, we cannot claim to abide in Christ unless we are like Christ. Anyone else? So I'm going to help you explain. I'm going to help you understand this. Ready? Y'all ready for this? Okay. So my wife got things for me. I'm going to help you. No, not yet. No, she's working on it. (laughs) So again, John Stott says, he says that we cannot abide in Christ unless we are like Christ. Y'all see this? It's a glove. (laughs) It's a glove. (laughs) My hand can abide in this glove because my hand is like this glove. Thank you, little baby. Look at that. Uh-oh. Okay. I was nervous in the first service because I had tried them on beforehand, and the box said one size fits most. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, let me be most. Let me be most. <laughs> so, look, you see this? My hand is now dwelling in this glove or abiding in this glove 
it's remaining in this glove. I can't shake it loose because I abide in it. Just like nothing can shake you loose from the hand of God when you're in his hand. Nothing can pluck you from his hand. My wife's giving me a signal. Stop doing it so much. I'm going to stop. <laughs> but my hand abides in this. You see that? This is one of those food service gloves. So here's what I want you to see. The best way to remain is to find yourself in the service of God through serving others. See, if if you want to abide in him, then guess what? Find yourself in a position. That's why we say here that we want to help you leverage your work, help, help you make a difference through leveraging your work. And so what that means for us is that we want you to find your place on a team where you can serve and serve God through serving others. And so we want you to utilize all your gifts and your talents and everything that you have in order to serve God through serving others. So if you're going to truly abide in him, then you've got to find yourself in the service of God. You got that? I don't think you do. Ready. Give me another one. Yeah, here we go. Come on. Ready? My hand can abide in this medical glove. Use your imagination. Because my hand is like this glove. Five fingers. Five fingers. Ready? Thank God that I'm most. Ready? Okay. My hand can abide in this medical glove because my hand is like this glove. And when you are walking in obedience to Jesus, here's what you understand, is that the disease of your dis-ease is covered because you abide. You can take some universal precautions, and when you abide in Jesus, guess what? The disease that you, the disease that you have of sin in your life, guess what? You're covered because you abide in him. Okay. Y'all got it? I don't think you do. See this glove? Y'all see that one? Winter glove. My hand can abide in this glove because my hand is like this glove. See, y'all ain't got it yet. I ain't got you. Ready? See that? Abiding. Remaining. See that? My hand is protected from the elemental circumstances of life because it is abiding in this glove. And the same is true of you. When you abide in Jesus, you are protected from the elemental circumstances of life and you don't freak out when things go wrong because you know that you're covered by Jesus. Because you abide. (laughs) Y'all got it? I don't think you do. This one's a little different. Ready? See this glove? Look a little different, right? But my hand can abide in this glove because my hand is like this glove. A little snugger. Okay, there we go. 
myself in the face with the strap when I show you. <laughs> so here's what happens. Ready? My hand can abide in this glove because it's like it. This is a boxing glove, one of them MMA boxing gloves. And sometimes you got to know that in order to abide in Jesus, you're going to have to fight against the enemy. You've got to know that if you're going to abide in him, then you better learn how to fight. When the enemy tries to attack you, you're going to have to learn how to fight because at times it's not going to be easy to read your word. You've got to fight in order to read your word. At times it's not going to be easy to pray. You've got to learn how to fight in order to pray. It's not going to be easy to walk in fellowship with other brothers and sisters. You've got to learn how to fight for that stuff. It's not going to be easy all the time to have fellowship with God, but you got to be in a place where you're willing to fight for your relationship with him and let the devil know and all his imps know that I'm going to stand on the word of God regardless of what you might try to throw at me. I'm going to walk in the commands of Jesus because I've learned how to fight in order to stay with Jesus. Are you ready to fight? If you take nothing else from what I say, I want you to understand this. Is that obedience towards Jesus calls you to fight. You gotta fight. I was about to say for your right. You gotta fight in order to stay abiding in Jesus. You gotta fight for that. Listen here. Dr. B.J. Miller, he once said that it's a great deal easier to do that which God gives you to do, no matter how hard it is than to face the consequences of not doing it. We have to understand that God has called us to obedience, and obedience to him is better than disobedience. When you obey, people think that it's a ball and chain to obey Jesus, and it's not. It's not a ball and chain to obey Jesus. It's liberating to obey Jesus. If you take a train off of the train tracks, that train is not free. That train is in danger. If you take a tree up from the ground and pull its roots out, that tree is no longer, it's not free anymore, but that tree is headed on a pathway to death. And so if we don't abide in Jesus, guess what? If we don't obey his commands, then we're heading towards danger and we're heading straight towards death. We got to learn how to abide in Jesus and obey his commands and have a proven confession and a proven declaration towards him as we walk in a proven obedience to our father. Is that all right? Father, thank you. God, your grace is sufficient for us. And so, God, we call on you. God, we ask for your spirit. God, to help us to walk in obedience towards you. God, we can't make it on our own. God, we have to fight in order to stay connected to you. So God, help us to fight. Help us to know that our obedience is proof of our love towards you. Help us to walk in that, Jesus. God, I pray by your spirit that you would grant us the grace to obey you. And not just obey you in word and act like the Gnostics did and try to pretend as if they 
had better fellowship with you? No, God, help us to have real fellowship with you. Help us to walk in you rightly, walk before you, and to obey your commands at whatever cost, even if it costs us our lives. And so, God, whether even if that's not physically, God, help us to understand that, God, that we're called to give up our lives. We're called to give up our life for you, meaning our preferences don't matter. Meaning the things that we want out of life, they're un- unimportant in comparison to what you've commanded for us. And so God, teach us that. Help us to learn that. Help us to know that. Help us to dis- make better decisions as it relates to that. And so God, we give you praise. We give you honor, Jesus. Glory, majesty, and power belong to you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.